You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on RBMA Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. I am joined a little bit later on today by special guest Todd P., for an interview, Todd uh, opened Transpicos, which is the venue where we've hosted the Bunker Limited for the past two years, and we've done various other collaborations together with him on the Bunker, and he's about to open Market Hotel tomorrow, and we'll be doing our first party there next week, so stay tuned for an interview with him uh, later on, and in the meantime, I'm going to play some music. Um, this first track is from Lee Gamble. It's called Lovejoy. You're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
Hello, you are listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. Coming up pretty soon, we're going to have an interview with Todd P. of Market Hotel, where we're doing our next party on January 30th with Silent Servant, Bill Converse, Jahelia Fields, and Forma. More info on that at thebunkerny.com. To tell you about what you've been hearing, the last track was Voices from the Lake with 258B. That's off their new Spazio Disponsibile label, which I'm probably butchering, but uh, it's a new label they announced today, and that will be out in March. This track coming in now is Wada Igarashi, upcoming on The Bunker New York, out, I don't know, sometime this summer or fall. So it's a pretty exclusive preview at the moment. And before Voices from the Lake, you heard from New York's Bookworms with Touchless Automatic. And we started the show off with Lee Gamble and Lovejoy. Stay tuned for more music. And we're going to have Todd here for an interview in about 15 minutes or so. You're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. I've been playing you some music. The track that just finished was John Tejada and Tin Man with Diamond Lanes. That's a brand new release. For that, Lil Tony with Yokum's Groove. And started that set off with Wada Igarashi with a track that's so new it doesn't even have a title yet that will be coming out on The Bunker New York later this year. And Wada, if you're listening, we do need those track titles. Um, we're here today with Todd P, uh, who's been a longtime promoter in New York and beyond. Um, when exactly did you start producing, promoting events? Um, I first put on an event when I was in high school in Texas. Uh, <laughs> I guess I was 16. Which part of Texas? Dallas. Outside Dallas. of Dallas, really, but around there. Dallas, and when was your first show in New York City? 2001. Wow. Yeah. So you've been at it even longer than The Bunker. I well, was yeah. doing some events back then, but The Bunker officially started in 2003. Well, and some of the first events I ever went to in New York were The Bunker at Tonic. Yeah, and those just Tonic in general, I'm sure, was totally uh, your vibe back then. Oh, yeah. And we did some events at Halcyon before then even. Um so for the longest time, you did v events mostly in like in that era in the early 2000s. Were you doing events in legal venues or was pretty much most of what you were doing were, I don't know if we want to call them illegal, non-traditional, unlicensed? Improvised. <laughs> Improvised. Um, okay. No, I did a lot actually in legal spaces then. I was actually, in those days, I did a bunch of shows at um, Star Foods, which is a place probably nobody remembers. It was on First Avenue at Second. Okay. I actually did a bunch in the city, which may come as a shock to people. Yeah, no, I remember from that was that was the era of things actually happening in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And the bunker actually moved to Brooklyn in 2007. And I remember when it happened because everybody thought we were crazy. They're <laughs> like, you're moving to like, nobody's in Brooklyn. You can't move your party to Brooklyn. Like, who's going to go to that? Yeah. It's like people live in Brooklyn, but they're not going to go to a party in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was unheard of as recently as two, not unheard of, but people thought it was a really wild idea. Yeah. Um, so I guess we're here mostly today to talk about the talk of the town right now is the reopening of the Market Hotel, which has somehow already achieved legendary status. <laughs> um, can you tell us maybe a little bit about the history of the Market Hotel and how? it so quickly kind of became this uh, like legendary space. Well, Market Hotel is a really old building, first of all. It was built in the 1870s, and um, it's the oldest building in that neighborhood, which you've come to know well. It's yeah. now, now your, your home. Um, but it, uh, it has a really long history. It was originally built to be a bank. It also was like, uh, it predates the subway around there, the J train that's so emblemic of the neighborhood. It predates the trestle. Wow. In so fact, it's at that weird angle has nothing to do with the train. That's just well, the angle of the street. It does. It just doesn't have to do with the train being elevated. Originally, the train was on the street on Broadway. Okay. And it was a, like a steam engine, you know, right. real locomotive. Um, and that's important to the building's history because the basement, which I've come to know very well, replacing all the water lines, all the gas lines, all the electrical lines, all the sprinkler system and all the other things we've had to do to make this place work, I've been a lot, spent a lot of time in the basement, um, which is interesting because down there you'll find the remains of an old entryway that went through the front of the building into what used to be the um, the platform for the 
ground level steam train that went down the center of the road. The front of the building being like where you enter Mr. Kiwi? Exactly. Okay. So it used to be that you would go in there and the very front had staircases that went down and you would go underneath the train and then come up in the middle to get onto the the, the commuter train. Ah, uh, I see. I so see. Back then. So it's really, it's a very historic building. But years later, the bank closed. It became a Dominican nightclub in the late 60s and into the 70s. Uh, and that closed down in 84 after the Happy Land disaster in the Bronx. Right. When they got really strict all of a sudden. Um, so was that uh, like an unlicensed venue then? 100%. Oh, wow. Yeah, in okay. fact, <laughs> the staircase, we one of the things we did during this renovation process was to replace the entry staircase on the Myrtle side, which is what we always used when it was like our underground space. And uh, that was a staircase that they very quickly roughed in, completely illegally, completely unsafely, to try and keep the fire department from shutting them down after the Happy Land disaster, because before that they only had one entrance and exit. Ah, uh, okay. It was a place called the Broadway Chateau. And, uh, you know, I don't know what they were doing in there necessarily, I've heard stories, but I can tell you this, the entire exterior of the building, most of which still is, was clad in um, wrought iron for security, so they didn't want people getting in or out. So Lord only knows what they were what they were selling in there, <laughs> probably guns and drugs and people. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that was '84, and then from around then it became a baby furniture store, and it was just an unused, dusty warehouse up until 2008, when uh, we responded to the sign on the side of the building that had been up there for 10 years and never had gotten return calls about renting it, and for some reason they returned our call that day. Ten years. Ten years. There was a sign with the phone number. Yeah, because as as you said, I've moved. I've moved into the neighborhood, and I've noticed there's there are so many businesses still around there, like storefronts oh, yeah. on Broadway that are either unoccupied or you're like, there's no way these people are even paying a thousand dollars for rent. But they yeah, have it's a like how many? You got to sell a whole lot of broken phone chargers and and beanies to like, you know, afford the market yeah, rent we, at this point, and that seems to be what the main the main products available for sale in most of these stores are. Yeah, we went into that bakery and they didn't have any bread. Oh, the Haitian one? I get the one that, yeah, on the market side of Broadway yeah, right there. it closed actually, but yeah. Uh, they were like, yeah, we have bread. Usually people get really into buying bread when they get out of work, so we'll have bread <laughs> around five, yeah. but you're going to want to, don't wait too long because we run out of bread pretty quick. Yeah. So yeah. like, okay, so you're a bakery who's open all day mm -hmm. and you have bread for about an hour. Sounds super legit. Yeah. And they were open for like 10 years. <laughs> I remember that place. Um, How? Yeah. But no, it's, and then basically we took it over in 2008 and operated it as a totally, you know, uh, under the table space, we'll call it that, for a while um, until 2010. And it, you know, it was popular. It was fun. It was good. It was like a special spot because it was so big and it was so, uh, it really felt illicit. Is that what you think's like kind of, I mean, because there were so many of these types of spaces that have been used for shows and even in that era, but how did market kind of come to like define that era and be the space? Is it the size? The I think that was sort of a high water mark for what they were at then time at that point calling the DIY yeah. movement. And um, the scene had grown out of every other spot that could happen. And that neighborhood was just on the cusp of becoming tamed, I guess would be the right word, is if that's not offensive, um, by the police, you know, and changed up. And, you know, there was a certain kind of like old school lax enforcement going on. And then, and it was tolerance of whatever, whatever reason, probably not for uh, reasons that are that, um, 
that politically defensible. Right. Um, but for any, in any case, it was the largest space of its kind that had happened in a long time, probably since the late 90s when Williamsburg first came online and there were all those crazy warehouse right. spaces that no longer exist. Yeah. Um, and it sort of had that spirit to it. And the booking was was solid. It was where people wanted to do. And the, and the sort of indie and to some degree electronic booking industries for whatever reason, wanted to cash in on the on the cachet of what was going on there, and they wanted to start putting their their acts there instead of at some of the more commercial places, and that was and it created this kind of excitement of places getting out of these stuffy environments and playing in a place that was much more intimate and much more uh, much more improvised. I'll and seeing some again. rather large bands who had just played at totally Bowery Ballroom or something mm-hmm. like that, and that I'd particularly since those bands are had mostly come out of the scene that this was sort of the Big Daddy of, and then they had kind of otherwise graduated out. Right. And Which a chance. that also continued into 285. I mean, what years were 285 Kent? Because I remember that happening a lot there, right up to the end of 285 Kent, where you would hear a band playing a huge show, and then you would hear announced a day later, like, yeah. surprise, they're playing at yeah. 285 yeah. Kent too. Uh, market closed in um, April of 2010, and I sort of started doing stuff at 285 Kent originally when it was still John Barclay space. Um, John Barkley, of course, of Bossa Nova. And Juno now. And Juno, yeah. Uh, he, I started doing their Halloween of 2000, um, 2010 also, so just a few months later. Um, and then he had a police raid at 285, and he was like, uh, this isn't going to work. We don't want to do this. I don't want to go to jail again. And I was like, well, I'll take it. I bet I can keep this thing going. And he, he gave me the lease. And uh, I started officially doing stuff there in New Year's Eve 2010 to 2011. And that was also, and that lasted quite a while, and that was also in... Closed what, two what years ago la- yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's been two years? Yeah. Wow. That feels like a while ago. And you, at some point, I wanted to get into the, like, the legalization of spaces, and at some point I know that you actually did have a plan to legalize 285. 100%. Yeah. That w- was that the plan all along? Yeah, it actually was, um, because it seemed possible. Obviously, Glasslands had legalized. Right. Right, next, right door. next door. And it had no neighbors at the time. We, of course, didn't know that they were just about to start breaking ground on the uh, Domino Sugar Factory. But even so, I mean, that's still, even now, that's years away. That's going to take So a while. we knew we could survive for a while. Uh, and the building seemed to have kind of a magical ability to not get in trouble with anybody. Yeah, I still don't and I understand had just, that. I had just come out of, I had just come out of doing Monster Island also, just a couple blocks away from there. So it seemed like a nice, we literally moved all my things from Monster Island to what's now what became Twitter have Kent on like you know by foot right. <laughs> on like rolly, rolly, granny, granny on, carts. On, on rolly carts and like shopping carts um but uh anyhow yeah no we did go through a whole plan and the landlord was very into it and was like kind of sign us a lease extension which you know you need to do if you're going to put a bunch of money into something um and you know was going to sign off on our plan. I spent mm, ten to fifteen thousand dollars on an architect and to try and get everything going. And I don't know for some unknown reason the landlord just stopped calling us at a certain point. Um, and of course, about a year later, we found out that Vice was taking over the building. So right. uh, I wonder what happened there. Uh, but anyhow, he well, at let least us, he, he saved let you the trouble on. of pretending like he was going to. Well, he did pretend, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then he just he just hemmed and hawed for the longest time and. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we lost some money on that, but then that's, un, you know, it was unfortunate, but all things considered the idea of doing stuff in that location in that neighborhood doesn't really seem very appealing to me right now. So yeah, that's, that's all gone 
yeah. south pretty fast. So you have a very long history of doing events in these more non-traditional, off-the-radar venues. Mm. But in the past few years, it seems you've concentrated not all your energies, but most of your energies on opening Transpicos and Market Hotel as fully legal, mm-hmm. permanent, legitimate venues. Why? Uh, what? What is the reasoning behind that shift? Well, it's a both a personal decision as well as sort of a, a testing or just a, a a read on the direction of the city. Um, I think that you know what I spoke about earlier in the conversation about how. Market Hotel's original incarnation was able to exist because of a certain kind of sweet spot moment where the sit and where where the wholesale enforcement of the of the regulatory things of the city weren't being undertaken there. Um, I think that that has very quickly changed, not just in that location but all over the place. I think that the whole city has um, become more uh, enforced, which, frankly, you know, in retrospect, I have to say, I mean. It probably was always enforced if you weren't white, and so maybe that's not such a uh, maybe that's something for me to go cry about. That yeah. things have changed, um, but on a personal level, of course, I mean I'm older and I have kids, and uh, and also I feel that I have access to some capital. I mean I don't have access to the kind of capital that a lot of these other club owners and and people have, but I have access to capital to some degree beyond what the average person or sort of any kind of upstart might have who isn't independently wealthy anyway. Um, and, you know, I feel that I've done a lot of work with showing what you can do with nothing. Right. And uh, and I feel that that's sort of a young person's game, and I I'm, I certainly take my hat off to anybody still doing that and doing exciting things that way. But for me to still be doing these improvised spaces where we build the stage out of wood we find in the street or something, it's just not what I feel that my creative energy and my unique sort of opportunity at this point in my for lack of a better word, career, um, would be inspiring to me. You know, I feel that that is being done and I'm proud that we sort of inspired other people to go that route and to try and realize they can open these spaces with very little resources, but that's not who I am right now. And it would be a little bit disingenuous for me to try and compete in that environment and say, oh, here I am, I have access to these options and whatnot. So to me, that becomes a a sort of responsibility and and a challenge to try and do something with something different with a little bit of money. Now, there's a big difference between a little bit of money and a lot of money. But it would be, in my opinion, silly to pretend that I that there, that I still have to pretend like I am dealing with no resources at all. So to me, it's about trying to provide a lesson of like, hey, maybe this doing things with no money thing was in a, in a certain way a little bit of a, of a privileged arrogance. Being like, hey, we could do something. We're going to go and, and askew all the normal things and do it our own way and we won't get enforced upon because we have this special treatment Being from white. the authorities exactly <laughs> or upper middle class or all or some combination um and so how inspiring is that really to people who actually really do come from low means so to me it's like well i'd rather show what you can accomplish with the kind of resources you can raise with people who are actually like-minded to you and who are not too far out of your own economic strata rather than this way that things usually happen, whether it's in a not-for-profit spectrum or in the for-profit world, where people are just getting money from like mega-rich people or big, huge, huge endorsements from the government or from big private organizations. So to me, it's sort of a challenge as a guy who's, you know, definitely an adult at this point, definitely has adult responsibilities, to show how do we do this in a way that isn't 
that doesn't go down this route where, that tends to lead things to be not very inspiring? And also, how can you demonstrate to other people who might um, who might be interested in doing something that you can do it with reasonable sums of money that, yeah. that a reasonable person could raise? To me, that's more challenging than this angle of like, let's see what we can get away with with zero, num- zero money. Also, it would just be crazy for me to try to te- attempt that as a as an old man with kids. But um, so so I've been really interested in this idea forever of trying to do this for fra- for fractional budgets, budgets that are way lower than everybody else does. And and I can say the budget of market, which obviously is more than we ever thought it would be, is still up, you know between ten percent and twenty five percent of what similar sized spaces have opened for recently in New York City. What do you think the difference is there? Why? How are you? What are you doing that's enabling you to pull off a venue for that small fraction of what other people are spending. Well, to some degree, I'm willing to kill myself with uh, with, with sweat equity and labor, <laughs> you know, work 14-hour days and, and make it and bust it through. But also, it's about it's about not making it's about making really um, really frugal decisions, and also it's about like not just pouring money into things that are that are not essential to what a space is about. Um, I really, you know, I think that. My model for how to operate this space is sort of the way I see the other economy of New York operating. You know, the, New York is several economies, but one of the ones that is the biggest that really keeps the city going is sort of the, the the model of like immigrant entrepreneurs, like people who come to this country and they open a small store or they open yeah. a small business of providing some kind of a service or what have you. And the way they they do it is they they really shop around for people to do their their work for them. They work with independent people. They use capital that they raise from among their own community. And they really go uh, all in with with trying to make sure that it isn't just this bloated, you know, budget where they're pouring, wasting money, which, you know, sort of another example of sort of white middle, upper middle class arrogance. Just be like, oh, you know, yeah, we spent $5 million. It's the investor's money. It's like, well, yeah, but shouldn't that money? Did you really need to spend that much? And yeah, doesn't I've, that doesn't that provide? Doesn't that force you to compromise things that you wouldn't otherwise have to compromise? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I've without naming names, I've definitely worked with venues who spent far too much money. Yeah, building out the venue, and it very quickly interferes with the the actual legitimate vision that they had for the venue gets totally. compromised right away because. They have these investors who invested millions of dollars 100%. who want to see a return, understandably. But it's and, I, and I feel like that's gotten worse as the sort of DIY side of things, the punk side of things, has gone so far down this like road of let's pretend that we have no money and it's all anarchism and it's all just like let's not let's not ever spend a penny. It just kind of empowers that people who get sick of that aesthetic are just like, well, I'm just going to go to these super clubs that spend crazy money and have these, you know, spent a million dollar design budget or something, you know. To me, it's important to have a middle middle ground of like, why don't we just create sensible places that are comfortable, that we like, and are and are good, good incubators for the kind of music we want to see. Yeah. And we're not going through some martyr process of like, I have to be in this hot place that's uncomfortable and dirty to enjoy music, or it's not real. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, we're we're. None of us are getting younger, and I know, for example, we, we have a lot of young people that come to the bunker, but a lot of people who have been coming to the bunker the entire time that are still coming are getting to a point where they don't want to yeah. go in a porta potty in a <laughs> warehouse or, you know, it's just, yeah, it's gross. We want something, yeah. we don't need super fancy, but we want something like a little yeah nicer and more legitimate feeling than that. Well, you know, the thing that really kind of drove that message home to me was 
I did a lot of traveling over the years, not so much now that I'm, you know, married to all these businesses and married to two little ch children, but um, I used to travel all the time by myself and mostly went to kind of places that were not as well off as this country or Europe. Um, and I went to a lot of places and, you know, you, you get around these people who really make a fraction of what the average person makes in this country and they're clean and they are look respectable. And you see these kind of like backpackery hippies with their, you know, going down with their hacky sacks, <laughs> like when torn clothes and haven't taken a shower in two weeks. And it's sort of insulting to these people who have nothing, but they look okay. And I know that seems like a far-fetched metaphor, but you know, you, 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 you assign that to the idea of this like particular variety of clubs that I'm associated with, which are these dirty, you know, disheveled places that have shitty sound, bad bathroom facilities, are not heated or air conditioned, are, you know, maybe have bed bugs <laughs> yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and you're just like, you know, honestly, and here the, these are usually being located in what are essentially kind of gentrifying neighborhoods or edge of, edges of gentrifying neighborhoods where there's like surrounded by people who have no means to open anything and being pushed out because somebody who's pretending to have no means opened this thing. Right. And it's, or not exclusively for that reason, but certainly that's a, that's a very visible symbol of it. Oh yeah. And you're like, well, if, and, and there's always this mentality of, well, shouldn't we try and be including more kinds of people here? Shouldn't we be trying to like find people from the local community who have in, who are interested in interesting ideas, who are intellectuals? Cause obviously there's intellectuals from all walks of life. How do, shouldn't we be trying to include these people? And you think about it, it's like, well, like I've dealt, I've dealt with all these sort of like radical level people forever who are like, we should be more welcoming. We should be really trying to diversify and like be, be an open space and a safe space for people from the community to feel they can come to. And it's like, listen, one of the first steps for having people feel they can come to is having a space they would ever want to come to. And that means taking seriously the art forms that come out of their own community. And also it means not creating a space where you're glorifying a crappy living situation because these are people who have very little means, but yet they choose not to live in filth. Right. Because they find that to be sort of, it's, it's sort of a pretend poverty. It's sort of glorifying a kind of like grossness that I don't think is actually very politically interesting. You know? Yeah. And so all of that has gone into my decision in the last few years to do something different. I just feel like as much as that had a, um, it had a message to it for years, the idea of like, let's build, let's rent this spot and just do it. And that's inspiring for a while, but it's just kind of like, now it's kind of beating a dead horse. And I really wanted to see what do we do to take the next level? How do we challenge this and really try and raise the, the, the conversation to the next level? And that's, that's really what's inspired me to do what I'm doing. Great. Well, speaking of community stuff, I know that, you know, Trans Picos is a home to independent, experimental, as you could say, DIY music. But the venue also has a really heavy involvement in community service that maybe I think a lot of people don't even know what's all going on there. Um, can you talk some about the community outreach you're involved in with Trans Picos and that I assume is going to be part of Market Hotel and, and why that kind of work is uh, an important part of what you do now? Oh, sure. I mean, both spaces are not for profit although we don't necessarily trumpet that very, very much. Um, we're not out asking for grants for the most part, although there is quietly a little bit of development work that happens. But um, Transpicos has, has since day one, actually, before we were ever hosting concerts, we were hosting um, afternoon classes and workshops. Mostly the, the, the most frequent users are a group that, uh, of development and disabled adults, like mentally retarded and autistic adults, who come in and, um, and there's a couple of different troops of them who work with musicians from our crew and some of our, our sound engineers and whatnot. 
and have generated these bands, these acts. One of them is a hip hop act called Zulu P, which has gotten a lot of notice, which we're really proud about. And there's also sort of a folk music crew. And there's a crew that does like gospel. And there's a crew that's just percussion. And they come in for three hours a day, literally every weekday. And they, they use our stage, they use our sound system, and then they have you know people they work with in our scene who have taught them how to use beat making software on like iPads and whatnot. So they make their right. own beats. Some of these guys are, you know, they're kind of savants and they're really like good at what they do. Um, and so we've been doing that forever. We also do like after school programming and we work with like other local kind of NGO kind of uh, organizations to do like, they, if they have to do a training session for their people. We'll provide our space for free for that. Or if they have a certain kind of a event or a gala they need to do, we will host it. We work a lot with like some of the local politicians as well who have uh, have various kinds of events that they that they need to that they they want to host with to engage the community. Um, and so we'll be doing that a lot at Market Hotel too. We we do this because we really believe in it, but we don't necessarily trumpet it too much because I don't want people who come at night who are looking for a entertainment experience, looking for a, a nightlife experience. I don't want them to feel like they're in a stuffy community center or something. Right. And that went into the way we designed the place too. We, you know, it works during the day. It's really bright and sunlit. And at night, it feels like a totally different place. Right. Um, through my involvement at Trans Picos over the past two years, which I think I mentioned earlier in the show, this is where we've done the Bunker Limited, I think. I don't think we definitely weren't the very first event there, but maybe one of the first yeah, parties first when month. it became yeah. Trans Picos. Um, one thing I was really blown away by when I got involved was that the curation of the events overall at the venue, it's more, it's not like one booking overlord. It's this group project where a bunch of people are involved and come in and out with different levels of involvement. And this is obviously something intentional that I've actually never been a part of at any other venue. So I'm just wondering what's what's the reasoning behind this, the open, more open booking structure that you put in place at Transpicos and also at Market Hotel? Well, we knew that we wanted to, to recreate the spirit of a place like Tonic right. back in the day. But the reality is that this, that the scene has not only, that that scene isn't, isn't, in, isn't coalesced in the same way it was in the, in 2004. Not to mention the ideas behind a place like Tonic, the sort of uh, approach to sort of an intellectual approach to music that also has a sort of connoisseurship and a, and a, and a canonical knowledge of, of, of important seminal people who've come before, that that has actually, thankfully, kind of expanded to more genres. Whereas what used to be represented in kind of the downtown aesthetic yeah. is now an idea that you can really take further. Not to mention that particular aesthetic has sort of become institutionalized and has been accepted into kind of the, the like, you know, institutional level of like New York arts. So we really felt that, felt that there were, there was a, a lack of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, serious music coming out of the um, more underground side of the spectrum in New York. And, and I personally felt that I'd been involved in some stuff that had maybe like moved things in the direction away from having that kind of gravitas. And it was important to me to bring together people that hadn't ever, that maybe weren't aware of each other, but that we saw as having concentric circles. And individuals who represent sort of certain, genre would be the wrong word, but just certain movements, sort of ideas, sort of groups of similar-minded intellectuals 
who like music, and there's maybe this group of people in this puddle over here, and this group of people in this puddle over here, and some of them even like the same forebears, but they don't know that they all are thinking in the same direction. And we saw connections between um, connoisseur-level electronic music and people doing sort of uh, drone-based sort of uh, avant-composition, and people doing you know drone-based noise, and people doing noise with beats all being of a certain kind of mentality that weren't performing together or necessarily even aware of each other's work and or certainly weren't performing at the same venues and we wanted to create a space where all those ideas coalesced into one sort of sense of 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 commonality uh, in order to remind folks that like you know just because it's underground it doesn't mean it has to be about 17 year olds taking their shirt off and jumping around to like rah 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 music you know but the thing can be more the thing can be nothing wrong with that either but the thing can be more <laughs> there can be more there and when i moved to new york i think most personified by by um by tonic there was a sense where even though there was this movement of kind of like what you might call art rock you know i think like a label like social registry records would play all the time at tonic where they would also have glenn bronca yeah we actually, we actually had those guys, that Rich who did Social Registry was kind of my regular go-to guy when we did the upstairs rock shows at Tonic that, funnily enough, became a part of the bunker because Tonic was booking all this kind of stiff, quiet music yeah. that you're maybe talking about, and they would have these midnight shows upstairs. And after, and they would come down and be like, you guys have to, you know, it's time for the show up there, you have to quiet <laughs> down. And we're like, there's 150 people bouncing yeah, off yeah. the walls down here like you guys need to find somewhere else to do this yeah, yeah. so the social registry kind of saved us actually in that yeah. era because i was like rich we we need bands up here we need cool stuff at yeah. midnight so well and that's when i first sort of started going there all the time and that was right. really to me super exciting yeah and i felt that you know but whereas that made perfect sense in 2002 2003 by 2010 2011 2012 nobody was thinking that way and now I'm happy to say whether it's our, whether we're just part of what was already a, a zeitgeist that was building up or whether we helped to inspire, I look around at the booking of all the other spaces of our sort of size in Brooklyn and they've all doing a lot more avant-garde music. They're all including a lot more sort of uh, intelligent dance music. It's all happening. It's all, people have really expanded their horizons away from just, you know, slacker rock and roll. Right. And I mean, but not just... I mean, I feel like that Transpicos especially is very diverse kind of culturally and crosses a lot of barriers that I think you're saying the other venues are catching up. But I, to me, um, it seems like Transpicos actually has a lot more going on. The doors are w more wide open to different communities of people, which I know is an important thing that's going to happen at Market Hotel. Definitely. That's something that's super important to me. I feel that you know, I really feel that um, even though the city, people talk about, people moan how the city has gotten so expensive and it's become harder and harder for people who aren't very wealthy to live here. And that's true. And it's certainly a lot of people that would have um, sort of survived here on kind of a hustler level in the arts community haven't been able to survive here anymore. But at the same time, I feel like as much as that's a bad development for people moving to, new, to the city who come from this, like, you know, rel relatively white, upper middle class kind of artistic bent. It's also been a good time in some ways for people who came from immigrant backgrounds, black, Latino people also who've been here forever, their families have been there. There is a sort of emerging um, better off middle class of like kind of striver level individuals who've gone to the magnet school system in the city and other kinds of ways of getting educated, whose parents maybe speak, don't speak English at home. 
but now are urban kind of cosmopolitan intellectual people who are aware of fashion, who are aware of, of more sophisticated art stuff, who are aware of, of a real fusion of ideas. And I feel like that is what's interesting in the city right now. So at Picos, we've taken a real concerted effort to try and work with folks who are from like the West Indian community and from the like various Latino communities, but not just like, oh, we're going to do a merengue show to show that we're diverse. It's not yeah, that no. kind of that kind of hokey stuff. It, we're actually, you know, it's more like a respect that, hey, no, we're in intellectual space and we want to work with things that we intellectually respect. There is music coming out of this world that we intellectually respect and not just on some step up kind of program. It's a uh, it's like a real concept that because of the situation in New York where the economy has been so out of control, good, but bad for poor people, it has been, and most people, honestly, it has actually in some ways helped some people who've come up in the city and, you know, there's, there, there, and that there's been opportunity for some individuals. And so to me, that's a savior for this town in terms of having a really um, dynamic arts community is that there's all these individuals who actually come from different backgrounds, who could bring new ideas, new, especially with music, particularly just new, straight up new sounds. And they're not just making dance hall or making reggaeton. Right. They're making s stuff that is infused with noise, infused with electronic music. And, you know, it's really an interesting thing. And we're, we've been showcasing that at Picos and we're definitely looking to showcase that kind of stuff at, at market also. Okay, great. Well, um, if people want information about you and your venues coming up, where, where where would be the best place for them to go on the web? Do you guys have a website or a mailing list or Facebook? Where where what's your hub? My website, uh, longstanding, you probably could use a redesign. <laughs> uh, good old ASCII is uh, uh, toddpnyc.com, and uh, it's it probably needs to be updated more often than it is. Um, Markethotel.org has just been. Okay. Temporarily reformed as a new uh, as a new uh, website, which will be getting an even better design soon. Um, also, Facebook Market Hotel NYC. Yeah, I've been working with Rick to make sure all the events are getting up on Facebook. That's probably the most kept up of all of the right or the Twitter. I'm I'm I'm, I'm pretty yeah, good at Twitter. You're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. So what? Uh, I'm going to talk about the bunker event next week later. But what? There's there's events already starting this week. So do you want to tell us about the first show, which is actually tomorrow night? The Definitely. First. Tomorrow is the first show I have booked myself in a really long time, and it's also the first show at Market, other than the sort of preview show we did with Sleater Guinea last month. Uh, it's a really nice, diverse bill, mostly women performers. Uh, it's Via App, who's a really amazing uh, yeah, live electronics no person. Um, Dream Crusher, who's this uh, sort of noise beat maker who also does these kind of screaming, growling, hardcore level performances. Um, and uh, also Kill Alters, which is this woman, Bonnie Baxter, who makes her own beats and uh, and and does really kind of aggressive vocal vocal stuff of her beats and then drumming with her is is Hisham Barucha from uh, from he used to play in Black Dice he was in he's the he's the sort of the the other member of Boredoms he's he's, he's been, he's been in everything that guy he's yeah like, he's an amazing guy and uh, and then also who am I forgetting here um, oh and Mallory who used to live at Market Hotel oh okay who's gone on to have a a really you know interesting new career she's sort of a coming up career as a as sort of a uh, a more uh, atmospheric sort of electronic music musician. And then running it up out are all the body actualized DJs who are also used to live at market. Yeah. And then so many people lived at market. Oh, and many, many people, many, lots of different things, different eras <laughs> for only having been there for three or four years. 
And then uh, the next day on Saturday is the sort of second of the opening parties, and that's more of a sort of rock and roll party. Um, and that is uh, a place to bury strangers and PC worship, who also used to live at Market Hotel. <laughs> uh, and uh, Gorillatos, who are like a really, you know, they just, they just signed a DFA. They're really just amazing, like best rock band in New York. Um, and, uh, and then Pill, which are a really great female fronted rock band. Uh, and then DJing that night is Dust, which is John Barclay uh, from Juno and Juno, and uh, and the former Thirty Five Can. I think he called it Bohemian Grove when he was in there. And then uh, Green Jellyfish, who's a really amazing performer. And these are you. You say you book those shows yourself. These were me. These were my my curation. Which you. These are. I think I. It seems like it's been a while since you directly curated. It seems like you're more a curator of curators now than a curator of shows. I would say shows. that's an accurate, that's an accurate <laughs> description. I'm more of a curator of curator of curators at this point. <laughs> Very meta. And then, of course, next uh, weekend on January 30th is the Bunkers' first event at Market Hotel with Silent Servant, Bill Converse, Jahilia Fields, and Forma. You can find info about that one on thebunkerny.com. And kind of officially, not officially announced yet, we are doing uh, a No Way Back party on February 20th, also at Market Hotel with Interdimensional Transmissions. And that will be BMG, Erica, Derek Plesleko, Patrick Russell, Carlos Souffrant, and myself. And we have some other stuff booked already coming up this year. And I'm There'll be a lot going on at market, so stay tuned to all that. Um, I'd like to thank Nahal Ramchandani, who's been playing the background music, really beautiful stuff throughout this interview. Um, we're going to be here until 6 o'clock. I'm going to play a little more music. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Todd. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting yeah. me. Uh, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. Thank you.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio. Just going to read back the last few tracks I played for you. This right now is Detroit Diesel with Freestyle on the newly relaunched Dumb label, D-U-M. Before that, a brand new upcoming release from Mike Simonetti on his own 2MR label. The name of the track was Release. Before that, Skyland Mountain with Tolstill and started that set off after the interview with Roxy Moore, Aquarian Drugs, Jugs, Jaguar Woman, and Oni Ihan uh, off the DR1 12-inch. Uh, I'm going to keep playing music through the end of the show. We have another half hour left, so keep it locked. You're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RVMA Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. Uh, right now, you're listening to the end of a track from Randomer called Dem Things. Before that, Tallman785, the Fidel remix on Fidel's own label, uh, Border Run with Operate, and started that off with Ancient Methods and Guided by the Force of Compassion. Uh, before we go, a few announcements on upcoming events. As we've mentioned a couple times, we're doing the Bunkers uh, Market Hotel launch next Saturday, January 30th. And then in February, we're taking the Bunker to Europe for a string of dates. February 5th at Concrete Paris, February 6th at Bergheim Berlin, February 12th at Pickle Factory London. And then we're back in New York on February 20th for No Way Back, presented with Interdimensional Transmissions at Market Hotel, and another one coming up on March 4th at Good Room with Orfex, DJ Nobu, Fit Siegel, Long Count Cycle, and our resident DJs Eric Cloutier and Mike Servito. Uh, the last track coming in here is another upcoming release on The Bunker in New York, this one from Ulysses. It's called Object of Interest. Hopefully we'll be out late spring, early summer. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Todd for being a great interview subject. Thanks to Nahal for the ambient music support during the interview. Tune again in two weeks and follow uh, all of our activities on our website, thebunkerny.com. Again, you're listening to The Bunker New York on RBMA Radio.